Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Each episode will feature a compelling conversation around an important issue. As we step into the tension, we remind you that the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views held by Millington Baptist Church. Now, let's start our session. All right, well, welcome back to the Underground Sessions podcast. My name is Bob Erbig. I'm your host. And uh, we are continuing uh, with our conversations in the underground. Remember, the underground is courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. And so that's the rubric we use to... um, to talk about different topics that are out there. Sometimes it'll be an issue just related to faith. Sometimes it'll be more specifically related to culture. Sometimes it'll be politics. And sometimes it'll overlap with all of those. Well, today I'm really excited because I, I have a guest with me today, Dr. Harish Rada, uh, who is a biologist. And uh, he was actually a panelist at one of our last Underground Sessions events that we did called The Future of Humanity and Technology. Is it great or is it grim? And so we talked about a variety of issues from artificial intelligence to surveillance to economics, how artificial intelligence will impact economics. And Harish had had a lot to say about uh, the gene editing and the genetic genetic engineering uh, piece of that. And uh, I just wanted to open up with a quote today um, from Emily LaProust, who is the CEO of a company called Twist Bioscience. And she said, I think DNA is going to be the most important material of the 21st century. The last century was about computers, and now we're entering an era of biology. And so we thought if we're going to talk about DNA and gene editing, we need to have a biologist on here. And so Harish, glad to have you with us here today. Thank you, Pastor Bob. Awesome. Harish came all the way down from Newark uh, today. And just let me just give you a little bit of Harish's background. He is a cell biologist who's worked in academia, the food and beverage industry, and biotech. He got his PhD from UMBC in Maryland, and he did his postdoctoral training at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And then Harish has a whole uh, host of experience in in those fields, um, and now he's actually uh, uh, back into his first love, which is teaching. And so I know Harish personally. He's a member of our church, a great guy, and I imagine you are a fabulous teacher. So Thank you. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, to hearing from you today, Harish. Thank you very much. So I think uh, maybe a way to starting off the, uh, the discussion today mm-hmm. is asking the question, uh, what are two or three big areas where you've seen gene editing technology making a big impact over the next five to ten years? Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. Um, I think, honestly, from my perspective, and again, you know, this is based on my experience and my my personal views here. Um, I think two major places where we'll see gene editing and gene uh, manipulation technologies uh, really come to fruition is going to be in uh, the impact that it'll have um, on food for uh, the world's population, um, as well as things like personalized medicine. Um, it's interesting that quote that you you read from the book, uh, which which just uh, reminded me that there is there is possibly another area that um, uh, DNA per se will be pretty big, and believe it or not, that's going to be in things like uh, computer chips mm. and things along those lines. Because I remember going back to my Georgia Tech days, um, many of my colleagues were using 
DNA fragments and modified DNA fragments to build micro circuits and resistors. So that is probably going to be another area. Maybe not in the next 10 years, but certainly. So, so say a little bit more about that. You, you think that, uh, is this, I, I've, I've heard and read a lot about how people are wanting to combine essentially biology with computers. And so yeah. some people, even I've heard people like Elon Musk will mm-hmm. talk about at some point we want to become cyborgs of some kind, I think are his words. Um, is that what you're getting no, at? Or is there something different? No, no, this is much different. This is not quite so sinister. This would be <laughs> <laughs> Not quite so Terminator-esque. <laughs> right. Um, no, this is along the lines of, you know, it, when it comes to computers um, and technology, it's always been how fast can we make a processor? How small can we make a processor? And one of the areas that's been really exploding for the last 20, 20 or, uh, or so years is the area of nanotechnology. Mm. And in that area, they look to use materials that are, that are very, very small, but which can fulfill the same sort of functions as what you would use metals for in, in, in a transistor. So I, I, my recollection was is that there are people playing around with the idea of using a very structured molecule like DNA to help enable new technologies in that area. Hmm. So what are the real-world implications for that? Like what are, what, are, what are some things that people will see coming down the line when, when that technology comes to fruition, other than just hearing it referenced as something Tony Stark did in a Marvel movie, <laughs> which is when his Iron Man suit eventually was nanotechnology. Right, right. Are we going to be shooting repulsor beams out of our hands or is there, you know, what does that mean for us practically? Yeah, I, I think what it's going to mean for us practically is miniaturization of a lot of things ah, that okay. we're use, currently using. Um Thinner laptops, um, okay. You know, maybe thinner watches. Well, I like watches that. Watches can that can do a lot more powerful things than they, than they can already do. Um, I think that those are some of the some of the sort of areas, and and I think along with that maybe increases in in processing speed. Again, and I think that that's probably the extent of my knowledge in terms of of um, where that technology can go from from a from a computer and processing standpoint, but. That okay. is out there. Okay. Well, why don't we turn, you know, you, you have a, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you have a specific focus or, and, and worked in the food and beverage industry. What excites you about the impact of these technologies in that sector as it relates to food and beverage? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that's, that's been sort of um, a real passion for me for uh, several years now. Um, so let let me step back and, and kind of give you a rationale for, for where my thinking sort of has progressed in that area. By all estimates, we we currently have somewhere around oh seven, seven and a half to eight billion people on the planet globally. And all estimates say that by the year twenty fifty, we're likely to hit about ten billion people, you know, globally. And from mm-hmm. a just from a societal standpoint, that is about two to three billion people more that we will have to feed. And the limitations, you know, I mean, it, it's such a multifaceted problem, and that's why it's always been fascinating to me, um, in that you have to look at things like resource management. You know, is there enough land to grow the additional food using the current techniques that are being used by the industry now? Or do we have to... 
uh, find new ways of doing things and new innovations. And uh, some of the technologies that, that we talked about at the underground sessions, um, genome editing and things of that sort, has really starting to um, impact um, ways of doing things. You know, th there's always a couple of ways that you can use this technology. Can I make more food in a smaller amount of space? And if that's the case, what sort of new ways of growing crops and, and also maybe not even using crops, maybe producing ingredients that I used to grow out in a field, but maybe it's done in a fermentation tank. Obviously, that area is going to touch on uh, GMO type of organisms. Um, but then the other side that we've seen, certainly gene editing, is to produce improved crops things that are more pest resistant, uh, drought resistant, and um, you know, heat mm. resistant. So now you have more robust um, varieties of, of plants that can be grown. And then you couple that with you know, less, less biological um, sort of technologies like vertical farming, um, urban farming, that, that's mm. a big thing. You can go into New York City and see a lot of um, rooftop gardens where they're growing Food, so it's really starting to think about food production in some very innovative ways to really get to the point of how do we feed ten billion people? Right. So now, uh, when I walk into a place like Shop, like I, I shop at Shoprite down the road, mm -hmm. and uh, all I feel like it's not just them, but it's all these different uh, grocery stores I walk into, and they all have like their their healthy section, you know. And uh, you're always looking as you go into the store. Does the uh, does the product have the non-GMO badge on it? Because we've uh, kind of been told, you know, anything that's a GMO is bad for you. You mm -hmm. know, that they're, they're modifying the gene in the corn and you know, soybeans or whatever else it is. Um, and, and that seems to have been become kind of a controversial space. Mm -hmm. So what's your thoughts on that? Should we, should we eat GMO food? Should we not? Is it is it increasing some of the uh, digestive diseases, the autoimmune diseases that we we have uh, mm -hmm. seen in the U.S.? Uh, that's a that's a really complex question. Um, I you know my my view on I this, can make it simple. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a, this is a it, it's a good way to think about it because it kind of captures the big broad implications of this um, this area. Um, GMOs, right? Genetically modified organisms. Um, and these are things, as I had mentioned, ways to make food ingredients in, in big, large fermentation tanks, kind of like a brewery, right? Um, and it is a way that you can get rare nutrients, ingredients, what, what have you, flavors, obviously, um, things of that uh, sort, make it in a much more cost-effective and resource-effective way. Now, you touched on on some of the the things out there, which is is this good for you? Is this bad for you? The I, I'm somebody who thinks that you know it's the story is still out. You know, I there things like ingredients from genetically modified organisms they just have not been out in the world and being consumed for a long enough time for us to say one way or another. You know, there are definitely. Um, instances where ingredients from genetically modified organisms, um, you know, people feel very strongly about about whether they want to introduce that into their diet or not, and that is always going to be a personal preference. 
Um, but I think in terms of the hardcore data that's out there, I, I just don't think we've tracked it long enough to know. So part of this problem, and this is one of the things that does keep me up at night, is regulation around this sort of area is is still evolving. I just don't think we know enough of even the questions to ask to put the proper sort of um, guidelines in place. Uh, things like how do we, how should we test for safety for um, things that are that come from genetically modified organisms? How, and we haven't even touched on consumption of genetically modified organisms. You sort of touched on that with um, gene edited corn and soybeans and things like that. So I think it's going to take a community to come together and it and I firmly believe it has to be people from the food industry as well as um, consumer advocates and and scientists pure scientists who are working uh, together on this and probably even um, I would say uh, people in Congress to come together because I think you need to have a perspective on the sort of impact not just on health but also economy and and you know all of the various fingers that this will extend and so those uh, stakeholders need to be involved mm-hmm. it's important I, I like what you said about especially people that know what's actually going on because I think too many times we we get people involved with some of these things that don't, that aren't practitioners or they don't really know what's going on um, so I think that's that's certainly an important yeah. piece um, I I, uh, I had recently watched part of a documentary that's actually streaming on Amazon and it's called in defense of food. And uh, I don't know if you, mm-hmm. if you've seen it, but um, if you have Amazon prime, you yeah, can go, you can go stream it at home. Uh, but the guy was making the guy who did the documentary was talking about how in different stages of uh, our, our history in the U S if you look over the last century, certain foods have, uh, at different stages of, of the history, uh, people think certain foods are better than others. So, you know, if you look back, everybody thought at the beginning of the century, like protein was where it was at. And then it caused all kinds of problems because it wasn't balanced out with mm-hmm. uh, with other other foods. So it's it seems like it's an area that's just going to always be debated. You know, what's, yeah. what food is good and, and, you know. And like you said, if we have 10 billion people, we got to feed them somehow, right? Right. <laughs> so, so that's good. Um you touched on regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is there, uh, I should say, what sort of regulation is there in the food and beverage industry for ingredients made using gene-edited technologies? That is a terrific question. Um, the short answer to that is it's, it's evolving. Mm. There is, um, and gene editing is a technology that really is going to make us revisit the existing regulations for for the longest time genetically modified organisms right the idea was um you're introducing a foreign gene to make something better so for instance if you wanted to make a drought resistant um you know corn for instance you might insert a gene that comes from a different organism that would help confer um, a, a more robust uh, resistance to drought. Now, that's that by definition of the under the old regulations, you are inserting a foreign DNA into that organism. But now, for the first time, what gene editing 
enables you to do is modify the existing DNA within an organism. So I could mm. go into corn, into a corn seed or what have you, and edit its own DNA to try to make it more drought resistant. Okay, so I'm not putting in a foreign gene into that into that plant. So now, at the end of the day, do I really have a a um, something that has recombinant DNA that came from el- elsewhere? No. So what should I, um, you know, what should I call that? It is clearly genetically modified, right? But there's a lot of people who would argue that, well, wait a second, we have not introduced anything into it. And here's where the debate goes, Bob. What's the difference between doing the sort of gene editing into that versus plant breeding and selecting for a more robust uh, strain of corn that by natural you know, um, selection purposes uh, or, or methods um, has gotten me a more drought-resistant um, corn variety. So that's the kind of debate that's going on. And I think those are the considerations that people are talking about to say, okay, if you use gene editing technology, is that really GMO or is it a different class? What should we do? You're listening to the Underground Sessions podcast. Underground Sessions is a ministry of Millington Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our teaching ministry, you can visit us online at www.millingtonbaptist.org backslash media. You can also subscribe to our sermon podcast in the Apple iTunes store. New sermon podcasts are uploaded each week. And now back to the underground sessions. Well, that's, I mean, really, really interesting, Harish. And um, I mean, I know that's kind of your wheelhouse, but you, you said something in that last segment uh, that made me think. So the idea that we can now go in and we can rewrite the DNA essentially of corn. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to switch gears here and talk about what implications does that have as it relates to human beings, <laughs> right? So there, there's technologies out there like CRISPR, mm-hmm. and um, uh, people are talking now about how we, we've mapped the human genome, and now now we're in the era where we're starting to write DNA, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me sh- let me share with you another quote, uh, a guy named Vandana Shiva, who's an environmentalist, said this, genetic engineering has never been about saving the world. It's been about controlling the world. So with that in mind, I think the question I'd ask you is, what keeps you up at night <laughs> as you think about <laughs> things like genetic profiling and gene yeah. editing? What's what's the things that, like in the middle of the night, you wake up and you say, oh my goodness, yeah. we're going to enter the brave new world mm-hmm. if this happens. Yeah. Aldous Huxley was right, you know, that type of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and I I think I want to start off that the answer to that question with um, that story that I shared when we did the underground sessions in this in this segment in particular. So back in November of two, uh, 2018, um, there was a uh, a conference um, out in the Far East uh, devoted to gene editing technologies, and there a a Chinese uh, researcher. Um, uh, for the first time presented results where he had used gene editing technologies to create gene edited babies. And this was the first time and um, he, he I, 
I do think that he had convinced himself that he was doing something really to benefit those parents. And and, and j- just to set this up, so the father um, had um, HIV, was HIV positive, and the mother wasn't, but they really agonized over having children because they were too scared that, that the ch- he might pass on the HIV to the children. So that's the way that it was presented. And um, the Chinese researcher, uh, Hei Zheng Kui um, is his name, um, decided that, well, let's gene edit out, knock out the receptor for the, um, the HIV virus in the embryo of, of these babies. Wow. And they were twins that were born, twin girls. Um, so he knocked out their receptor, the known receptor. There's, there's a receptor um, in, in our immune cells, which is where um, HIV attaches and then infects those immune cells and eventually will lead to AIDS. So he decided to knock that out as a way to prevent infection by HIV. Now, it's, it's really kind of crazy because, and of course, all of this was done with using in vitro fertilization methods. And one of the key things is that other researchers have pointed out, you never had to do this because the process of in vitro fertilization, they would wash both the sperm coming from the father and the eggs in such a way that there was no chance of HIV um, uh, surviving that process. So you never had to edit the, the, the children's genome. Now, so so th- that was sort of his logic in presenting this. Of course, there was widespread um, condemnation of this because, as we now know, it's it's coming up on a year later. Um, in his research, he was very cagey about it. Sort of sidestepped a lot of the regulations that were already in place in China, and the Chinese government really came down um, and said, "Look, you know, you didn't even follow the rules that were there." So, um, so, so it, it's good. To, it, it's it's bad that this had to happen, but I think we're seeing a good outcome where people are now updating those sort of guidelines. Now, the 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 last thing I want to say about that is the fact that we don't know. He, he knocked out a receptor in these girls. That's an immune receptor. Okay, you know. God didn't put that receptor there just to be a receptor for HIV. It has a function mm-hmm. for the immune system of these girls, and nobody really is going to know how that's going to impact their their immune systems uh, until they grow older and and you know are carefully monitored. So it's a decision that they never had a say in. So I, I think right. that that's the big thing for me. Well, yeah, and and there's there's certainly a lot there in what you were just talking about. I, you know, I, I, I don't. I don't know if there's a there. There can maybe be a romanticization, a romanticization, if I can say that yeah. that yeah. word of of what this thing is going, what gene editing is going to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember um, my first experience or uh, uh, introduction to gene editing came when I came through watching Star Trek. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but yeah, very you know, so. going back to the original series, of course, you had uh, uh, the movie The Wrath of Khan, and mm-hmm. Khan, of course, was this uh, part of the eugenics war. stuff that had mm-hmm. war that happened in the 1990s, which mm-hmm. didn't actually happen. Um, uh, you know, and then and then in the later series, Doctor Bashir on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine was a, an enhanced, genetically engineered person that we found about in the later 
series. And, and uh, man, that gets into whole different discussions about gene editing and designer babies and advantages yeah. and social disadvantages. Um, uh, you know, what, what's your thoughts on, <laughs> on that? And, and that you sort of have hit on it. You know, for the first time, I think um, we're now at an era where tools are available. And I think of gene editing technologies as a tool, right? And we now have the tools to go in specifically to make changes. In the example that I talked about, here was a researcher who knocked out a, a immune receptor. But if we know, you know, you had mentioned, we, we do know that the, the sequence of every gene in the human genome, uh, courtesy of the human genome sequencing um, efforts in the 90s and early 2000s. So now with enough information, one could go in to, to edit genes, maybe multiple genes, to improve performance, you know, and I'm not talking about athletic performance, although it could be that, but it could be something, you know, making um, um, somebody who is much more resistant to getting fat. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work on metabolism now, so it might be possible to make leaner babies, you know, to improve them. And then you sort of touched on it. Then it really becomes the haves and have nots because this is an expensive sort of technology for that sort of purpose. And so you will see disparities, I would imagine, uh, moving forward. And I think touching on regulation and, and this kind of speaks to technology far outpaces our ability to think about the moral and ethical implications. Right, right, right. That's yeah. kind of like the, I think even in the underground sessions I mentioned, yeah. I took a class on bioethics in college, and they talked about uh, what they call the technological imperative, that just because things can be done does not necessarily mean they should, should be, done. be done. And so if people think, wow, we can do that, they kind of outpace the ethics of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think to be clear, you know, designer babies, that's one you know, one conversation, mm -hmm. but there are helpful implications of this as well. So Absolutely. I think just personally for me, like my, my father passed away when he was young of a heart attack and I, I've seen a cardiologist for a few years. I've talked with him. I, they've done blood work on me. Um, all my stuff is really, really good. Mm -hmm. And I keep coming back to, I, I say to him, well, you know, what does that mean for my family history? And I remember the last time I went, he said, well, you know, if you really, if you really wanted to figure it out, you'd have to do like genetic testing out the wazoo. Uh, essentially looking for something. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to know that, you know, like, do I really want to know every single disease that I yeah. possibly could have yeah. because of this? And uh, what would that do to my psyche and things like that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and, and, you know, we just touched sort of on, you know, we've talked a lot about the negative sort of implications, but I'm glad you, you, you raised the idea of there is a lot of promise for personalized medicine with these sort of technologies. There's a lot of right, very right, specific right. things, specific diseases where we know that it's caused by a mutation in a single gene. And if we could go in and modify that gene, um, and it's not going to work for all diseases. I'll give you a really good example. Typically, if it's um, something like um, the production of a hormone is lacking, right? Because there's a genetic defect uh, where it doesn't produce uh, the needed hormone, right? One could think of 
going in to edit the gene to correct the defect. So now the the cells that produce that hormone function and are able to provide what's needed for the person. A good example would be insulin and diabetics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not not so much type two, but type one, which is a genetic uh, disease. There's a mutation in a very specific enzyme that um, that prevents the production of insulin. So um, things like that, you know, and, and there's a variety of other ones. Uh, so there is the the promise to really improve um, health for individuals who are suffering. Um, so it does provide doctors and 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 people with uh, who think about gene therapy as a, a really powerful tool. Right. So, I think we're, I, I've heard this discussion when it comes to social media that we, we live in an era where, where we have so much information that we lack wisdom. And so I think specifically in an area like this, we really need to have wisdom on, you know, what is, you know, what is good to do, what is bad to do, you know, and what are the implications of that? Because for instance, and I think you got at this before, but I've seen some, uh, research where when it comes to even editing out diseases, if you change somebody's DNA, I mean, you're changing their DNA forever. I mean, and that has implications for down the line with the, their kids and, and their um, people that come after them. So j- just one point of clarification. If you gene edit an adult, as long as you don't hit his germline cells, which would be, you know, sperm and, and eggs right? That change, whatever change happens, will not be passed on to, oh, I see. Okay. to the, the children. Um, but if you do modify the germline, i.e., you know, where, where sperm is produced um, and things like that, that, that then would enable that to pass on. Oh, I see. So, I see. Well, so but that's yeah, where wisdom is yeah. needed, you know? You can't <laughs> exactly. just assume things, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, Kind of to finish off that that sort of topic, one of the things about all of these areas that I think we now live in a world that's global and digital and how much privacy are we giving up for a lot of these? Right. You know, so. Right. Well, <laughs> so for just the last couple minutes, maybe we can shift because I have two questions. I wanted to ask you a question related to the privacy thing. And then I also want to ask for uh, people of faith, Christians that might be listening, what, what, what are some things that Christians should be thinking about? But my first question is in terms of the, uh, the privacy issue. At the, at the underground sessions, I remember you talked about 23andMe and <laughs> yeah. privacy that comes with these private companies that you can learn, oh, this is my genetic profile. How much privacy do we really have when it comes to that? <laughs> That uh, it's a brilliant question. I mean, we live in an age where you know how many times have we heard about this company being uh, this company's information being hacked and that company's information <laughs> being hacked. There was a breach. Yes, there was a breach. Right, and worse so, when it's your DNA than when it's your credit. I assume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and really, you know, in talking about companies like Twenty Three and Me, you know, who will sequence your your genetic material. And, you know, help you find, okay, because you, your metabolism is set up this way, you should be eating these kind of foods. That's really a beneficial thing. But at the same time, they've got the information that says, wow, you know what, you carry the gene for breast cancer. And in about possibly in 20 years, you might develop breast, uh, breast cancer if you're a woman, right? Right. Do you really, do we really well, want... Prostate them, cancer if you're a man, exactly. you know? Exactly. Do we really want... Or, or Alzheimer's, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
do you want that information out to where, um, you know, not to use the big brother analogy, but a, an insurance company, a health insurance <laughs> but, but <I> company, will. <laughs> <laughs> but I will, um, with that kind of information to make choices on who they choose to cover and who they don't, right? Mm. Uh, and that's always one of the implications of of a privacy breach with this sort of information about your own genetics. Um, I do worry about that, you mm. know. Um, and uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's like if you had the information, you could make a more informed choice. But do you risk having information that you might not want to get out um, out there? So I mean, you right. know, this is, right. and it all goes back to. How do you regulate this? Right, How do you right. ensure protection? So. Well, I'll be winning the book that you'll be publishing about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will teach us what to do. But maybe as we as we kind of close today, could you just give some some takeaways for for Christians on how do we think about some of these topics? What is there a some principles that we can yeah. we can walk away with to think about this? I think that's a great question, and and I think you know we can make this broader into even even um, you know lay people in general. I think. The more you know, I think get educated about this because for two things, your Congress people will be debating these kind of things, looking at these kind of issues as they come up in the realm of regulation, right? And and protection. What do you want them to do? And if you don't know anything about it, you may not understand the implications. You know, for instance, that example I just gave you about insurance companies getting your genetic information. If there's a bill coming across that your congressman is going to vote on, um, you need to be educated about that so that you can at least have your voice heard, you know, and and, uh, let them know what your concerns are. So I think that is an important thing right. to do. And I like to say, you know, in the first uh, podcast I did, I talked about how, um, I talked about that river of mm-hmm. the faith, culture, and politics, that, you know, faith informs yep. your worldview, and ultimately your, your worldview, excuse me, will impact culture, but then it, it eventually gets down to politics. So the things that you're talking about in culture now yeah. are eventually going to be codified into laws, and you want to be aware of, like you're saying, exactly. um, aware of it so you can make informed decisions. Yeah. Towards that, um, and I know that you'll you'll be able to share that with your listeners, um, some of the places to start, if you want to know where to go to find out more about this, uh, there's a great website at the National um, uh, Genome Research Institute. This is part of the National Institutes of Health um, that you can go to and find out in very simple terms, what are gene editing technologies? What exactly are they doing? Um, and there, there are links to references where um, you can find out more about mm. the, the topics. Um, that's a great place to start. I also, I think, provided a link to a YouTube video from the creator of CRISPR, which is one of the, the big gene editing technologies that's popular right now. It's a short video, about 15 minutes, so you can learn a little more technical detail. Not too much. It's a TED Talk that she, Jennifer Doudna, who's the lady who, dis- one of the discoverers, gave a very nice talk about that okay so, so J- jennifer dowdner and you would put it into youtube ted talk yeah and that will come up yeah oh great and i also provide a link so if there's a way to share a link with the podcast okay. would be great sure yeah all right well harish thanks so much for being on this was a lot of fun there are so many more things i had in my notes that i want to talk about but our time is short and we'll have to have you back on to maybe have a, a part two to this this topic absolutely because it, it is important and it's certainly not going away 
Yes. So thanks so much for people like you that are helping us think about this. And uh, thanks for coming into the Underground Sessions. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Well, we'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions. Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.